one other announcement. There will be a work night this Tuesday night from 6 to 9. There will be a lot of cleanup, window cleaning, things like that that needs done. A few more projects need cared for. And we also need to be moving some furniture into the Sunday school rooms and things like that. Hopefully that will be the last one that we need, but that's Tuesday night, 6 o'clock. Also, thank you, Nick, for the uh, offertory a little while ago, wherever you went to there. But uh, as I was listening to Nick play, it just reminded me he's going to be heading off to Grand Valley to college, I believe, this week. A number of other students will be taking off in the uh, uh, next couple of weeks here. we got a few that are at school already, and uh, we thank for the opportunities that they have. But I encourage you to pray for them. Some of them are going to some Christian schools. Some of them are going to some schools that are very much anti-Christian. And they're going to be hearing some things that uh, might rock their world a little bit and uh, may not be, well, will not be things they've been taught in their home, things they haven't been taught in their church. And uh, we pray that their faith would be strong enough to hold up to that and they'd stick with the Word of God and what the Word of God teaches. We are thankful this morning to have with us Andy Giesman. He's got a unique ministry on the college campuses, two college campuses in uh, Scranton, Pennsylvania, and if you were here in Sunday school, you heard about some of that. I'm not going to take a lot of his time to explain that uh, again, but just want to turn things over to him, and he's going to also open the Word of God to us this morning. So Andy, come and share with us today. Good morning. It is great to be back with you uh, here in Cairo. I was here uh, in March and uh, I always wanted to come back, but I, I didn't think it would be this soon. So I'm, I'm very pleased to, to be able to be here with you all. Um, uh, so, yes, I am a missionary to college students uh, in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Uh, is the simplest way of saying that I am the executive director of an organization called Addison's Walk Institute for Christian Studies, where our mission statement is to engage the academic community at the crossroads of faith, reason, and culture. In a nutshell, what we're trying to do is return Christianity to the table of ideas at our universities. Because uh, we believe, and I hope you would agree with me, uh, the biblical Christianity comprehensively answers life's questions. Does it not? And the average 19-year-old needs to hear that. Uh, so I do not have time this morning to share with you my whole story of how God called me to this ministry. Suffice it to say, I never thought I would be doing something like this. Uh, I grew up in a world that said that good Christian kids go to Bible college, um, wild kids go to Cornerstone, or Liberty or Cedarville, take your pick. I was trying to pick whichever one I could get the biggest reaction out of. I guess I, I, guess I hit upon a winner. Um, and then kids who don't love God at all go to state schools. Or, or private secular schools. That's the world I grew up in, and uh, I was kind of allowed to believe that if you went anywhere near a secular school, you'd burst into flames immediately uh, upon entering about a 50-foot perimeter of the front gate. Uh, so I never imagined myself in a ministry like this, but God changed the trajectory of my life about eight years ago. I went back to school to study philosophy uh, at the graduate level, went on for doctoral work at Biola University in philosophical theology, and uh, realized that in Scranton, where uh, a city of 76,000 with five colleges or universities, 10,000 college students, that not one Christian organization exists on any campus. Not one. 
Uh, so compelled by the Spirit of God, uh, being uniquely positioned and trained uh, for a ministry I never saw coming. Uh, I stepped away from traditional pastoral ministry two years ago uh, to launch this ministry because God has called us to dare to engage. And uh, I am having the time of my life. Uh, I'm having a blast. Um, I'd hope to be here with you tonight, um, but with all my education, I still don't know how to read a calendar. Uh, and I was looking at the wrong academic year, and I thought I didn't start teaching until Wednesday. Uh, the truth is, I start teaching tomorrow. So I have to get out of here right away. However, I did just receive a text, and my flight out of Detroit has been canceled. So maybe I will be here tonight. I don't know. Who's preaching? Who's, are you preaching? I'll give you a book if you let me preach from here. All right. All right. Because I'd love to... I, I, don't, I don't get to preach as much as I'd like to, so... Um, so I, I, I'm not going to take um, my time, which is limited this morning, uh, to give you the ins and outs of our ministry. If, if you can just trust me, and if I say it convincingly in my Sunday morning voice, that, that I'm a missionary to college students, just take my word for it, please, and uh, we can talk later. Uh, what you do need to know is that uh, Addison's Walk is not a club like... Um, Campus Crusade, InterVarsity Fellowship of Christian Athletes, or Campus Bible Fellowship. You might be familiar with that organization. Uh, those organizations, we would share much of their affinity, much of their, their, their missional attitude towards engaging students. We, we would be in league with them. Uh, but as a club, they have access to colleges because they are a club. And so they have access to students, to resources, to using rooms and and. Uh, being able to advertise on campus, I can't do any of those things. Um, the two large schools in Scranton are Catholic schools, and they will not allow any outside organization, no matter if they're non-denominational or what, um, uh, to be involved there. So what we do is under the radar. So I am not uh, a club. Therefore, I do not have access to students in the way that a club would. However, I have access in a way that they would kill for maybe. That's probably overstating it. Um, but I'm a professor at the University of Scranton and Marywood University. I, I teach philosophy and theology. Just think about that for a minute. I teach perhaps, and, and maybe I'm a little biased, uh, but I teach the two disciplines that specifically ask the hard questions to the average 19-year-old that's been told there are no answers. Yes, there are. And so in our classroom, we, we uh, try to generate a, a, an atmosphere of truth-seeking, uh, particularly in my philosophy class. It's easy in the theology class, as you might imagine. Oh, and by the way, I have free reign to teach what I want in my theology class, which is kind of nice. Um, in my philosophy class, uh, I let my students know who many of them think, why in the world am I taking this in the first place? Apparently they were unaware they were applying to a liberal arts college um, and that they have to take something like philosophy. This is stupid. It has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. Yeah, but it does. And I let them know that the basic definition of philosophy is the, uh, is the love of wisdom. And if you love something, you chase after it. And if someone loves wisdom, the thing you're chasing after is truth. So in my classroom, I try to create an atmosphere of truth seekers. And I let them know, unlike some things that they read and things that they have been told, there are answers. Now, you may disagree with what you think they are, but 
there are answers. And it's all the work I do in the classroom that outside I get to have the conversation with the student and I get to tell them who I am because of Jesus Christ. And I get to tell them that God knows their name. They're not nameless. They're not purposeless. They are not merely the material matter that they think they are, but they are a human person who carries the image of God. I'm having the time of my life doing this. So anyway, um, I don't know how long I'll be able to stay. I will tell you this. As soon as we're done, I'm going to have to figure this flight thing out because uh, I have to be back tomorrow morning. But as soon as I do that, hopefully, and maybe you would be willing to just pray quietly now that I could get that taken care of quickly because I want to talk to you. But I do not have the capital to tell my chair I'm not going to be there tomorrow. So uh, I, I have to get this taken care of. I'm going to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Disregard what it says in your bulletin. Uh, we covered that in Sunday school. So um, just ignore it. Uh, you've had missionaries here before, surely, yes. Um, and as a missionary, you probably would expect me to go to some passage like uh, the fields are white unto harvest, or uh, go and make disciples, be my witnesses, all excellent passages. I get it. Um, but because I have um, a slight case of nerdism, for which there is no cure, and it is getting worse. Um, I'm going to approach what is a unique ministry from a unique perspective of evangelism. And what I would like to do is tell you the story about Paul at the University of Athens. Paul at the University of Athens. And unless you think this is the only story like this in the Bible, you might also want to check out the book of Daniel, um, where you find Daniel and his three friends who are forced to enroll at King's College Babylon with Ashpenaz as the dean of students. Check it out. Um, there are precedents. In fact, in the Daniel passage, you actually find the first college prayer meeting, but that you'll have to have me back for that talk. Um, so I, I want to go over three key areas here in Acts 17, beginning in verse 16. And as an old preacher, this passage works out nicely because there are three major sections. How wonderful um, that I get to have three points and three major sections in Acts 17. But for those of you who um, are, are looking for a ratio, you're going to soon figure out that we're going to spend the majority of our time in the first section because it is a bit unfamiliar. We tend to, uh, probably not here at First Baptist Carroll, but I, at other churches I visited, um, there tends to be this habit of coming to words that we uh, happen upon in our study or reading of Scripture that are unfamiliar to us, and so we skip them right? Oh, look, a genealogy list, my favorite. I'm going to pour over this. Um, we don't really do that much, do we? No, or is that really a name? How do you pronounce that? I can't say that. I'm going on. And so sometimes, either because we just can't pronounce it, and, and I'm like that. If I can't say the word in my mind, I get stuck on it. I have to go figure out how do I pronounce it. Or if we see a word that we can pronounce, it's not a hard word, but we're unfamiliar with the concept, we'll move on, uh, because we tend to uh, read Scripture and study Scripture very pragmatically, right? Just like my students approach their, their university education. Just tell me what I have to do. I'm here to learn a skill. And there certainly is a pragmatic side to uh, studying Scripture. Uh, we, we need to know how to live, but there's also plenty of passages that tell us about what we need to know. 
So there's the is and the does, and, and they're together. Well, we're going to spend a little bit of time uh, talking about this passage here. And uh, we're going to talk about uh, the three ways to engage in a secular culture. Three ways to engage in a secular culture that, that Paul is going to demonstrate for us. And if you bear with me, we're going to talk about some words that might be unfamiliar to you. Please don't leave me when we get there. I, I promise you I will do my best to explain them to you, and you may even be interested. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be great as we get there? All right, are we still friends? Okay, good. All right, so Acts 17, verse 16, here's what it says. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, the them is Silas and Timothy, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean, new word, right? There it is. And Stoic, new word, philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Okay, we're going to camp here in this first, first section and spend some time here. This is really important. The first um, thing that Paul needs to, in order to engage here at the University of Athens in the secular environment is understanding is understanding. I explained in the Sunday School Hour here this morning that uh, one of my uh, ministry heroes, a guy by the name of Francis Schaeffer, who's been with the Lord for quite a while now, in a book called Escape from Reason, written in the 1960s, said that if we're going to engage with people, if, if we're going to be missional in our approach to people, whether you're a missionary or not, we have to understand certain things. We have to understand their spoken language, how they dress, what they eat, pieces of their culture, all common sense. And he would say that if you were speaking to a foreign missionary who is really getting it done, uh, it would say to you, yes, all those things are necessary, but they are not sufficient. There has to be something more. I also have to understand how they think their thought language. I have to have an understanding of them as a people, not just their spoken language, not just their, their culture and how it is manifested in certain things like dress and food and, and other things like that, but I have to understand how they think. Paul knew how to do that. Um, and so let's talk about the understanding that he had. There's, there's three key areas that Paul understood. So if you're taking notes, these are going to be subpoints a a b and c um first of all paul knew that at the core everyone is religious paul knew at their core everyone is religious verse 16 while paul was waiting for them in athens he was greatly distressed that the city was full of idols paul understands something about people and he understood something about the athenian people he knew that at their core, every person on the planet is religious. Now, in my intro to philosophy class, it is going to start on Thursday of this week. Um, hopefully, United isn't so backed up that I don't get home before then. I don't know what is going on. Um, but in that class, I will begin the class by doing the thing that everybody loves, where you insult their intelligence by reading the syllabus to them. Because... They may not read it themselves. So 
um, we, we go over that, and then um, I try to make that as fun as possible and uh, try to, to engage them, and it, it goes pretty well. But then I always take some time, and I tell them about who I am. And I tell them that uh, I have a family, and somebody mentioned to me, Andy, you didn't tell us about your family in Sunday school. Thank you for reminding me. Um, I have a wife, Becky. We've been married for 23 years this past June. And just uh, this past November, we uh, adopted our foster kids. So um, we have a seven and six-year-old, and uh, my wife and I will be in walkers or wheelchairs by the time they graduate from high school. So um, I'm, old enough to have, I'm old enough to have a student in college, and I have a seven-year-old in my house. So that's, there's that. Um, uh, so anyway, I tell my students that mainly because I want them to know that um, I'm off the market, whomever they are. I'm serious. I'm ac- I know it's, it's funny, and thank you for laughing at my joke, but I'm actually serious. There are predators in the colleges, and they're not just the grown-ups. It's a dangerous place. It is a rescue mission built a yard from the gates of hell. So I show them pictures of my wife and kids and my dog, Bruce. These are my golden retriever. And a really undignified picture. He's wearing Christmas stuff. Uh, I just let them see that. And I tell them, and I do this because A, it's the truth, and B, for shock value, because it's just fun. I tell them I'm a Christian. And they're like, well, it's a Catholic school. Whoop-de-doo. But then I tell them, and I was a pastor. What? Oh, you must be one of those guys who's thrown their faith away because you can't have theology and philosophy, except for you can. And I let them know, no, no, uh, I'm not a guy who's thrown my faith away. In fact, the study of philosophy has given me a more secure confidence in my belief in God. In fact, I have a, uh, a book manuscript I'm, re- I'm working on called How Philosophy Saved My Soul. And it, does that sound provocative? It's supposed to. All right, I... Just FYI, I don't believe philosophy has any salvific power, but if you read that, it might be angry enough to pick it up off the shelf, right? <laughs> See? Okay. So, um, so I let them know that, that uh, I believe in God and that I'm a Christian, and throughout the course of the semester, very early on, we have a discussion about belief. And so they assume that I'm a believer, and I let them know. I say, guess what? You're all believers too, every single one of you. And I will tell you this, every person on the planet is a believer, Every person on the planet is a believer. Paul knew it. Now, you notice I've chosen my words carefully. I did not say every person on the planet is a Christian. Now, I will say something to you that I do not say in my classroom. So if if that was a little edgy for you, I'm going to press my luck and take it a step further. You just can't stop me at this point. The cells and stalls of hell are populated with believers. Now, is Satan in hell? Not yet. Good answer. He is not. Not yet, and he is not. Right? Um, does Satan believe in God? Yeah, he does. Absolutely he does. Now, Satan cannot be redeemed. That's for a series on angelology or demonology um, that I don't have time to get into now, but he is a believer. The planet, the planet is full of believers. Every person on the planet is a believer. Every person on the planet is somehow religious. Now, perhaps not in the institutional, I go to church, I go to Sunday school, I carry my beads, 
my, my little prayer stone in my pocket, whatever. Maybe not, but every planet on the person is religious. And I tell my students that you're all believers because I know that you are all people of faith. And they look at me a little cross-eyed. And, and so the Christian kids are thinking, well, I'm a person of faith, and Andy, you're a person of faith. But the pagan sitting over there is not a faith, a person of faith. And the atheist sitting over there saying, well, Andy, you and the other Bible thumpers in the room is, is a person of faith. But I certainly am not. And I look at them and I'll say, yeah, but I can tell by your posture that you're a person of faith. You're sitting down. You are, are demonstrating an active belief that the chair is going to hold you up. Your faith in the chair is demonstrated by your posture. Unless you're levitating somehow, then please teach me how to do that. You're a religious person. Athens is a religious city. Is there a church street here in Cairo? Is this, is this kind of like church street? Is it Collingwood? Is that the name of the road? Because I, I think I passed several churches. Okay. But so there's no official church street, but there are churches all bunched together, Right? So a lot of towns have Church Street. There's a Church Street in Scranton, also thanks to Billy Sunday. There's a Drinker Street. Um, you can just think about what's there. Um, so we have a Church Street, and as you've seen in many American towns, there's a Church Street. There is no Church Street in Athens. Now, there's some good reasons for that. Number one, there is no church. Where did Paul go? The synagogue? He talked to the God-fearing Greeks, and then he went to the Walmart of the day the agora, the marketplace. We'll get to that in a few minutes. He didn't go to church. There isn't one. So even though he's in a secular environment, in a secular city, it is a religious city. And in Athens, um, it's not like all the temples and all the, the shrines are grouped together in one part of the city. The entire city, after it was burned to the ground in 480 BC by the forces of Xerxes of Persia. So after the battle of Thermopylae, the last stand of the 300, Xerxes' goal was to burn Athens to the ground. He managed to do it. And so once the Persians were booted out of Greece at a couple of major battles, um, they rebuilt the city as a monument to Athena, the patron goddess of the city. So the entire city is a monument to religion. In Greek culture, the separation of church and state unheard of, or a separation of religion and politics, uh, because there's only city-states, there's not nation-states, there's only city-states, and there is no church in Athens, so we can't really use those words, but a separation of politics and religion, unheard of. They are all extremely religious, and some of them very, very devout. Paul knew that. If we're going to engage in our world, we do not assume that someone who doesn't believe in God is... Um, a quote-unquote unbeliever. Now, they are in the sense that they are not a Christian. I understand that, and so those, that language is synonymous, and there's nothing wrong with that. But to say that they have no belief is incorrect. If they bear the image of God, they believe in something. They must. It's necessary. So Paul knew that. Also want you to notice Paul's attitude toward the idolatry in uh, Athens. I almost said Scranton. <laughs> in, in Athens. Um, the, the, how he's distressed by the idolatry. It says that, uh, again, there in the first part of that, that chapter, he's greatly distressed that the city was full of idols. Again, they're not in one place. They are everywhere. The entire Greek pantheon. So there are shrines and temples and monuments to Zeus, Apollo, Poseidon, Athena, and a whole bunch of other lesser-known gods and goddesses all throughout the city. Notice Paul says, it, Luke says of Paul that he doesn't go through the city ticked off 
at the complete pagan nature of these people. You filthy pagan Greeks. What is wrong with you? No, it says he is distressed. I understand what this word means, um, and let me try to explain it to you. I pastored in inner city Scranton for about 10 years. And um, I have done far more funerals than weddings, and most of the funerals I did were for people much younger than me. Now, if you're, like, in high school, you say, yeah, but you're pretty old. Well, shut up. No, I'm not. All right, but so most of the funerals I did were for people much, much younger than me who died terribly. Drug overdoses. Sometimes accidental, sometimes not. Um, I did the funeral of two separate murder victims who were former youth group members of our church. Um, and so as a pastor in the inner city, uh, it would not be uncommon for my phone to ring at 3 o'clock in the morning. Anybody who served in any ministry capacity probably knows what I'm talking about. And in our modern technological age, you can look at your phone and see who's calling you before you have actually have to answer it to find out who it is. Remember the old days, y'all? Yeah. So when your phones didn't, you couldn't launch a space shuttle from your phone. You actually made phone calls with it, and that was it. So I could pick up my phone, and I could see who was calling me. And even though I lived in Scranton, people wouldn't just call their pastor at 3 o'clock in the morning. Hey, I just want to tell you I'm praying for you. Like, that didn't even happen in Scranton. So I'd look at my phone, and my stomach, my heart would just drop into my stomach because I knew I was about to get some bad news. That's what that word means. Not angry, not irritated, not ticked off, not indifferent, heartbroken over an entire people group who are chasing after death. I think um, the author of the um, medieval classic Beowulf said it best. And if you have never read Beowulf, let me encourage you to. It is a great redemption story. It is full of Christian themes. So as the narrator is talking about um, the Danes and how they are suffering under this monster, this curse that is coming to their castle and destroying their knights, uh, their, their strong men, and dragging them off and tearing them to bits. The narrator says this of them, Woe be unto them who pray to the darkness that is destroying them. They do not know God. All they can do is pray to the same darkness that is taking their lives. But glory be to him who on his death day enters the Lord's domain. He would express the same thing that Luke is expressing, that he's saying Paul understands his heart drops into his stomach as he sees the, the, the godlessness that surrounds him. Now, Paul knew the thought culture of his world. So not only did he have the understanding of these things, but he had the thought culture of his world. Paul is classically trained. Paul comes from one of, one of the three um, Ivy League university cities of the ancient world. So Paul's hometown is Tarsus. Um, the other two would be Athens is the second, and Alexandria, Egypt would be the third. Now, if you say, what about Rome? Not yet. Rome is coming. They're kind of like the John, Johns Hopkins of um, Ivy League schools. They're, they're late in the game. They're They're coming. Um, but they are certainly on their way. So Paul was classically trained. Now, that means he has read a lot. That means he is highly educated. 
So we come down to verse 18. It says, A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods um, because Paul was preaching the good news of the resurrection. Now, these words, Epicurean and Stoic, these sometimes are where we say, Eh, they're old dead dudes who have nothing to do with me, so let's move on. Sometimes, right? Well, let's talk about it. First, let's talk about Epicureanism. Now, um, these old dead dudes who wore curtains um, are really important. That curtain wearer that you see there, that, that fellow, um, he's a dude named Lucretius who wrote a book that predated Jesus by about 100 years that I am, if I were a betting man, I'd go all in that Paul had read. That it would be unavoidable. It's called On the Nature of Things. And it is one of the best resources we have for Epicureanism. Now, we have others founded by a guy named Epicurus, so it's kind of fun to remember that. Um, And these guys, um, basically, by Paul's day, became the party animals of the ancient world. Um, The Roman uh, philosopher and Stoic, we'll talk about Stoicism here in a few minutes, Seneca used to look at the cesspool of Rome And he would kind of blame the Epicureans for that. But they didn't start off like that. They didn't start off saying, how can we be the biggest party animals the world has ever seen? In fact, they were asking a fundamental question. What is a good life? How can we live well? They were trying to figure it out. And so they came to this conclusion that a good life was a life free of pain. Now, does that sound terrible to you? Uh, Not a trick question. That doesn't sound terrible to me. I like a life free of pain. I don't wake in the morning, oh, please, God, hurt me today. I don't do that. Um, They also believed in a life that maximized pleasure. Now, again, you might have the the party animal in your mind, toga, toga, right? Just kind of going crazy. That's not what they started off as, but they did enjoy good food. They enjoyed friendship. They enjoyed fine drink. For them, uh, the best day was sitting under a shady tree with your friends out in a field having a picnic lunch with no issues or worries. Again, does that sound terrible? It shouldn't. That sounds good. But if they had a t-shirt and you wanted to be recognized as Team Epicurus, it would say, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. When you die, that's it. So party it up now. They also did not believe in the spiritual world. They were um, what we would call in today's language materialists. Um, They actually had a name for them. Uh, uh, There was a group of schools of thought in ancient Greece and Rome that shared the same idea. They were called atomists, like atoms. Now, they didn't have a clue about atomic theory like we can today in the 21st century, but they did think this, that all things were made up of very tiny particles that somehow either uh, adhered together or repelled one another and stuck to something else, everything, from the tie I'm wearing to your very body, and they actually believed in a soul, but they believed that the soul was made up of material stuff. There is no afterlife, and so they believed no gods, no problem. If there's no gods to be responsible to, then we can do what we want. In fact, these were the people who said that if you believe in God, not only are you dumb, you're dangerous. That sound familiar? That's still with us today. Um, by the way, in on the nature of things, you have Epicurus, or excuse me, Lucretius, 
who um, in that place, and it's found in many others, formulates one of the good arguments against Christianity. Yes, you heard me say that correctly. One of the good arguments against Christianity, it is called the problem of evil. And it can be boiled down to this. If God is so good, why do bad things happen? It's actually a good argument. Now, it's not insurmountable. Um, I'm not really worried about that. Um, But he, addressing um, Jewish people in particular, said, So, um, your God, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving. So the average Jewish person in the ancient world would would uh, uh, affirm that, correct? You would affirm that too, would you not? Okay, good. So he said, so, so what's the deal? Um, uh, he, would, he would say, bad things happen to good people, right? And he would say, suffering happens needlessly. And so he would be talking about children suffering and that kind of stuff that would break our hearts. And he would say, so what's the deal? Um, does God not know that people are suffering? Does he not know? Because you say he's all-knowing, so, so either he doesn't know, or he knows, and he doesn't care. So he's not all-loving. So he knows people are suffering, but he doesn't care. But maybe he cares, so he is all-knowing. All Fine, I'll give you that. He is loving. Fine, I'll give you that. But apparently he's not all-powerful because he's not stopping it. Which is it? Uh, I'm just going to let that hang here for a second. That is an ancient argument, and it's still with us today. It's called the problem of evil. By the way, um, a couple of you told me that you're interested in apologetics. If you wanted to tackle something and study it, do that. The problem of evil. So many people walk away from Christianity because they have a bad experience, and I don't mean like the preaching was bad or the music was bad or... Mark was playing a song and forgot to put the capo on the right fret, and it sounds awful. I don't mean like that kind of experience. And isn't that horrible when that happens? I know. Um, but they've, they've suffered. You should check that out. How do you answer that question? So that's Epicureanism. And by the way, just so you, you know that Epicureanism is alive and well, I have a, a modern example of an Epicurean for you. That's Miley Cyrus. Um... And that's among the more appropriate pictures I can show you this morning. If you think that this is just old, dusty, dead dudes who wore togas that have nothing to do with us in the 21st century, you are mistaken. They are among us. And let me tell you, Epicureanism is very attractive to college students. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And they hear that everywhere. There is nothing. There is nothing. There is no purpose. We, all we are is all we are. All, all we are is dust in the wind. That is a worldview, my friends. Nothing but uh, flesh and bone, nothing immaterial about you. If that is the case, this worldview makes sense. Epicureanism. It's also Stoicism. Now that curtain wearer is Marcus Aurelius, um, who was an emperor after the time of Paul. We know a lot about this guy, uh, or about Stoicism through this guy, and we have lots and lots of other um, stuff as well, some that predated Paul, some that was contemporary of Paul. Uh, but these guys really put a strong stock in reason. They, they said, I can figure this out. So if, if the Epicureans uh, t-shirt said, um, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, um, 
these guys would kind of have the old IBM logo, think, um, across their t-shirt. Um, use your reason to figure stuff out. They would say that the good life was a life that maximizes virtue. Now, again, does that sound terrible? No. So they both have elements that have valuable pieces to it. A, a life that, that uh, does, do you think God wants you to enjoy pleasure? Of course he does. Do you think God wants you to preserve virtue? Of course he does. Um, but they would say that it is up to you to be able to handle it. You are living your life in balance. And, and they, they believed in God, but we have to put some big air quotes around that because they did not believe in a God who had personality. They believed in kind of the idea of God that for them was just reason itself. So it was not a person. It was kind of this nebulous, God-like thing that through using, using your good reasoning, you could attain and be a part of it. Now, um, there's a book in the Bible that actually is a frontal assault to both Epicureanism and Stoicism. It's called Philippians, where Paul attacks both of these. You know where Paul says, I, I've discovered the secret of being content? That is direct Stoic language. See, the Stokes would say, well, I've discovered the secret of being content, and I've generated, generated it from inside of me. Paul says, I've demonstrated the secret for being content, and I cannot find it inside of me. It had to be given to me from an outside source. God gave me contentment, and it is through the gospel that I can be content in whatever situation I am, whether I'm well-fed or hungry, whether I'm in want or I have everything that I need, I have contentment in Jesus Christ. See, that's the difference between the gospel and stoicism. Stoicism says you have the power to figure it all out. Again, this is attractive to the average college student. Because they are told it is up to you, it is up to you, it is up to you. And again, I have a modern example of a stoic that you might be familiar with. Now, I thought about putting Mr. Spock on the same slide, <clears throat> but because I'm not J.J. Abrams, um, I was afraid of the universe unraveling. If you don't know who I'm talking about, that's okay. Some of you sci-fi nerds are like, yeah, you can't do that. Um, you know who I'm talking about. Uh, but Mr. Uh, uh, Master Yoda there is probably a very good example of, of an Epicurean, or, or excuse me, of a Stoic with a little bit of Eastern mysticism mixed in for fun. Let me show you one more thing. Um, the Epicureans and Stoics in verse 18, they're confused. Now, what you need to know about Epicureans and Stoics, and, and you wouldn't know this unless you went searching for it, and Luke, Luke doesn't seem to think um, he needs to explain himself, and I think the reason is because the original audience would have known this. It's just not part of our language anymore, right? He, Luke wasn't thinking, oh, in the 21st century, they, they aren't going to know. But they're confused because neither the Epicureans nor the Stoics have any concept of a resurrection. The Jews did, right? The Jews, the Jews certainly did. The Epicureans and the Stoics had no concept of a resurrection, and they said, what is this guy trying to say? And did you notice it says, and he seems to be advocating foreign gods? Did you see that? That's not the first time that's happened in Athens. About 400 years before the time of Paul, a guy named Socrates was teaching in Athens. And he did exactly what Paul's doing. He'd go through the Agora, the marketplace, the Walmart of the day, where you have to go, no matter you want to or not, at some point, teaching. And, and you know, um, Socrates, you might be aware, was sentenced to death by a jury of his peers, and the charge was corrupting the youth. 
Now, again, I grew up in a world that said that, well, he was doing naughty things with young kids. Uh, actually, that wasn't illegal in Athens. In fact, that was pretty widespread in, in the ancient world. Now, we have no evidence that Socrates was involved with that kind of stuff, um, but he was a corrupter of the youth, not in a malicious, like, family and youth services are getting involved kind of thing. Are you with me? In that way, like Socrates did, I want to be a corrupter of the youth. Here's what he did. So he got sentenced to death by jury of his peers by corrupting the youth. What he was doing is he was going around Athens and he was saying, you know, for centuries, for thousands of years, we as a culture have believed in this pantheon of gods, Zeus, Apollo, Athena, and the rest, and we attribute all kinds of power to them. But I don't think so. In fact, I think it is one God. This is Socrates. And he would say, I do not know his name, nor do I know where he lives, but I want to. And he had a name for that God. Does anybody know what he called it? I told you yesterday if you came in and said, Pastor. Does anybody know what he called it? It's a word that you know. Anyone? The Logos. So, you say, wait, like, the word? Yeah, the word. See, for the Greeks, you could translate Logos as word, but it has, like, a deeper, richer, uh, more robust definition, and it is the unifying principle. The Greeks, Socrates is not the first. There were others that came before him were, were asking the question, what holds the whole universe together? What is, what is the adhesive so that things work how they do? There has to be something central to everything. These pagan Greeks recognized that. Some thought it was earth, fire, water, air. They came up with all kinds of theories, and Socrates said, no, 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 I think it is a person. I have a colleague at the University of Scranton, a, a Jesuit priest, who says if Socrates met Jesus, he would be a Christian because Jesus was who he was looking for. John chapter 1, written to a Greek audience. John says, In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's saying, hey Greeks, that thing you've always been looking for, I know his name. And he isn't just out there, he is here. And the Word, the Logos, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He's here. So this thing in Athens, this is pretty cool, but this has happened before. The stage was set. So um, Paul demonstrates his understanding um, with, with those guys. All right, now we're going to speed up, okay? A lot, because now we're in familiar territory. So let's talk about the opportunity now that Paul takes. Um, in verse 19, it says, Then they, this is the the philosophers, they took him to a meeting of the Areopagus. So the Areopagus is kind of like the faculty lounge of the University of Athens. It's where you would go try out your ideas. They brought him to the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we all want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas does that sound like a culture you know? It's called Facebook. 
Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Oropagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Oh. I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and ignored all your pagan nonsense. Is that what your translation says? Yeah, no, mine either. As I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown. I am going to proclaim to you. Ladies and gentlemen, it just got thick up in here with Paul going to the Oropagus. And he doesn't stand up and say, isn't it wonderful that we all have belief? I believe and you believe and, and we can just live a life of unicorns and pegasus and sparkles and sprinkles and we're going to love and we're not going to hate and we're all going to be tolerant. No! He doesn't say that, but he doesn't say, you filthy, dirty, false God believing pagans. He says, I see that in so many ways you're religious and in fact, I carefully investigated what you believe and I carefully investigated what is in your town. I was speaking at a family camp a couple weeks ago and I mentioned a bunch of pagan authors that have import on today's 21st century, both in the church and outside of it. I'm not going to bore you with the details, but I had uh, two well-meaning women come up to me and say, you should never tell us to read stuff like that. And I said, I'm sorry, in the name of Jesus, you are wrong. You better know. And I will carefully, I will carefully, in the name of Jesus, I will carefully investigate their objects of worship because someone must. If we dare to engage uh, a generation that's coming after us, someone has got to know what they're thinking. So Paul stands up and he says, I understand that you're religious, and in fact, I see you're trying to cover all your bases. You even have a, 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 a wow, sorry, I want to buy a vowel. You, all, you even have an idol to an unknown God, just in case you missed one. Well, I'm going to tell you who it is. I'm going to tell you about the one you isn't that great? He doesn't just leave it, well, God bless you. Hope you find Jesus. I'm going to Corinth now. No. I'm going to declare to you, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase merely for time's sake the rest of chapter 17. You please read it and just so you don't take my word for it. Because not only did he take the opportunity, but he spoke with authority. And here's what he said. He didn't begin by saying, um, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That would have meant nothing to the Athenians. He began at the beginning, and he said, let me talk to you about the difference between the unknown God that you've kind of covered your bases for and the gods of the Greeks and Romans. He'd say, you see, the, the God of the universe is unlike your gods because he doesn't need you. <laughs> your gods need you. Now, Paul was probably not nearly as sarcastic and snarky as I am. That's why he's an apostle. I'm not. But he'd say, here's the difference. Your gods need you. You have to build them houses, sheds, and garages. You bring them food, and if you don't take it away, they're not going to eat it. You go and you pour out the drink offerings in front of them, or they think, oh, thank you, I was so thirsty. No, it's absorbed into the ground. They don't need you. And furthermore, the God of the universe is unlike your gods because he's not made of wood, stone, or metal. He's not fashioned by human hands, and he doesn't need anybody to take care of him. In fact, the God of the universe, says Paul, has situated men to live in specific times and places. And then he goes on to explain to them why. 
He says, so that some will seek him. And if you seek him, you will find him. The Greek gods could care less. They don't want to be bothered by you. Read Homer's Iliad. If you want to find out about a jacked up uh, religion that is really hard to figure out, read Homer's Iliad. Those poor people didn't know if Apollo was going to crush them or save them from one day to the next. No matter how much they sacrificed, no matter how much they promised, no matter how much they did, they had no idea. Paul said the God of the universe is nothing like that. He doesn't need you. He's not made by you. He is self-sufficient. He is self-existent. And he's done all this so that you will look for him and find him. And he said, oh, and by the way, if you need evidence of that, his son is alive. Drop the mic. Leave the Oropagus. Bam! Now, I have been challenged. Um, this is a narrative, correct? So, I am extrapolating ideas from a narrative. It is not an epistle. And I have been challenged that Paul failed in Athens. And he admitted as much in 1 Corinthians 1. Nonsense. Um, I'm told he failed in Athens because at the end of that passage, there are two people, we are told, who became followers. A woman named Damaris and um, another guy there at the end um, whose name was uh, Dionysius, who went on to become Pastor Dionysius of First Baptist Church, Athens. Okay, maybe it wasn't a Baptist church, but still. He went on to become Pastor Dionysius. And people say, you see that? Only two people came to Christ. Yeah, and... What's your point? So what? Um, I'm told that Paul failed because he used God's, uh, man's logic and not God's logic. Um, there's one kind of logic. Now there's bad logic. The bad logic says, all right, I'm going to break the donut in half and I'm going to eat half of it. And because I can't leave a half a donut, I'm going to eat the other half of it. That's logic, but it's bad logic. Um, there's one kind of logic. Logos is where we get our word logic from. It's not something man-made. We discovered it. We didn't make it. Paul was engaged at the University of Athens. Lives have changed. We, we don't know the full telling, but we will someday. Let me leave you uh, with something that I, I'm sure I told you back in March, but I, I like it so much I'm going to tell you again. And I'm going to close with this. Um, there's a book that I read a few years ago called Finding God Beyond Harvard, written by a, a, a lovely uh, woman named Kelly Monroe Kahlberg, who founded an organization called the Veritas Forum, uh, which would be in the same field of, of um, college ministry that, that we do. She was a student at Harvard Divinity School uh, where she realized that at um, HDS they worship everything but Jesus and uh, realized that something needed to be done. So she, she engaged in, and this book was her story. And, and I, I loved it. And um, she had this little part in there that I really liked. She took the speech of Aragorn before the Black Gates in um, the third installment of the Lord of the Rings movie, not in the books, just so for those of you who have ever read them. It's not in the books, but it is in the movie. And she took this, this great speech, and she kind of boiled it down and changed the words. And, 
uh, it's a bit of a creed for me, and I, I want to share it with you, and then I'm, I'm going to um, turn it over to, to Pastor. It is this. There may come a day when the church is called to abandon the university to itself, to its self-worship, to its idols, and to its delusionment. But it is not this day. about philosophies that people have, what people believe in. There's only one solid rock upon which we can build our lives, build our eternal destiny. Stand together. Sing a verse 404. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. in your life, and you'd like to talk to somebody about that this morning, we'd be more than happy to take some time with you and show you how you could be building your life upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you for the ministry of the Word of God to us today. Thank you, Father, for the unique ministry you've given Andy on the campuses there in Scranton. And Lord, we do pray for continued fruit, uh, continued faithfulness above all, Lord, that there'd be faithfulness there. Lord, we do pray that we would continue, each of us, to engage the people around us, whether it be on the university campus, whether it be in the factory, whether it be in the neighborhood, that we would care enough to, to hear them, try to understand them a little bit, but that also to point them to Jesus. Dismiss us now with your blessing. Help Andy to be able to get uh, uh, plane reservations made so that he can get back and be able to teach tomorrow. And just guide and direct us. Help us to follow you and please you in the things we do this day. We ask in the Savior's name. Amen.